during this season of Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which simply means coming or arrival. And it's a period of four weeks or parts of four weeks that lead us directly up to Christmas. And it's a celebration and anticipation. Uh, Much like we think of Christmas, we anticipate Christmas, we celebrate it. The same thing we're doing with the first coming of Christ. We celebrate it and we anticipate Christ's return. And, And one of the things that I appreciate about Advent is this becomes a busy season. There will be lots of extra things going on, band concerts and office parties and family gatherings and all good things in the midst of trying to do everything else that you normally do. And yet in the midst of that, we do not want to lose sight of Christ, our Savior. And so that's what I appreciate about Advent is that that focus on who he is and what he came into this world to do. And our theme for this Advent is light in darkness. And we're going to start at the beginning with creation and also the darkness that our world is plunged into. So I'm going to read portions of Genesis chapter 1 and then parts of chapter 3. And it's there in the bulletin on page 6 and 7 if you want to follow along there. And then we'll respond together thanking God for his word. So hear God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now the serpent, from chapter 3, verse 1, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of, the, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden In the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. 
and thank you for your light which shines in our darkness. And we pray that uh, your word would be a, a light unto our feet, would be our lamp, and it would guide us this morning and encourage us as we walk in this world. Father, we praise you and we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody like to go around uh, at this time of year and observe the Christmas lights that various people have decorating? I, I, I dragged my family out. We'd gone out to dinner on Monday night, and I, I took a, a different way home. And they were like, why are you going this way? And I kept saying nothing. And eventually we made our way to Mullins Bend. That's a, a neighborhood off of uh, Moore's Mill. I don't know if that's Newmarket or Meridianville technically, but it's right down from Lynn Fanning. And there are some wild things in that neighborhood, light displays, uh, Clark Griswold type things, a 20-foot um, blow-up thing. Those are getting outrageous. Uh, but I enjoy that. I enjoy seeing those lights. They don't have to be wild for me to enjoy them. I might be critical from time to time of various efforts, uh, but I do appreciate them. And I read a story recently from a, a professor, S.P. Cooper. I don't know him. I don't really know of him, but I came across this, and he tells a story of when he was six years old, his parents bought a house. They had been relatively poor, moving from place to place year after year, but his mom got a position uh, that provided a steady salary and enough money for a down payment. And that first Christmas, they put up Christmas lights. Uh, He wrote, they finally had the money to do so, and for, for his dad... It was a point of pride, a representation of his accomplishment and being able to provide for his family. And he says they looked splendid. They'd worked hard. But that was until the adolescent son of the next door neighbors came over at night with some of his buddies and cut up all the lights. It couldn't be proven, but that six-year-old boy, Professor Cooper, he had heard Uh, that neighbor and his friends and he says naturally his parents knew all about it and their barely concealed amusement was as much to show it even as they denied everything so his dad was furious but more importantly was deeply hurt he says we never had christmas lights again nor did i i couldn't afford the outlay i wondered if in these difficult times we might also suffer from the same kind of vandalism that I experienced 40 years ago. You know, there is darkness in the midst of this world. And one of the things that the Christmas lights remind me that I'm thankful for, and I don't, we don't do much in that regard, um, but I appreciate seeing that light pierce the darkness in the midst of this world. And at the beginning of the Bible, we see God create. And we see the first act of creation. And I want to look there. But we see who He is and the work that He's doing in this world. And so my theme this morning is just a, it's a part of a verse. Psalm eighteen twenty eight, the second part of that verse. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. That's what David writes in that psalm. It's what he sings. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. And so I want to talk about three things. The light of creation, the darkness of sin, and the light of promise. So we'll start with the light of creation. And I asked my Sunday school class, this are our, our, our teenagers, 
our, our youth uh, a question recently. I said, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And, you know, there's been so many different uh, superhero movies that there's lots of things that you could pull from. And I don't really remember their answers, but you can think of different things like, you know, super speed. I mean, you know, we don't like to travel. So what if you could just fly there? Right. That would be great. Uh, Invincibility. Right. You, You know, nothing could injure you super strength right these these sorts of things and here's what i told them and i had a reason for this my answer was the ability to speak things into existence right Uh, think about my words i i don't mean that they're meaningless and i certainly have a, a position to to use words and i'm thankful for that But let's be honest, I can't get the dogs to always obey my word, right? Rarely, and usually after the damage is done, right? I speak, and then I wonder if anybody's listening, and nothing happens. But when God speaks, things happen. That's what we see at the beginning of the Bible, from the very beginning And there's this huge chasm between us, and we're not superheroes. We're not even remotely close to that. And we come to these familiar verses, I think maybe some of the most familiar verses. Maybe the most read verse in all of the Bible is verse 1, because in January you're going to start your Bible reading plans all over again. Right? And you're going to start in Genesis, and you're going to read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what's the first thing that's specified in that creation? In fact, I would say this is pretty familiar too. If I said to you, let there be, light is usually the first thing that you think of because it's the first thing that God says. And God said, verse 3, let there be light and there was light. Now, if I say let there be light, I hope there's somebody in the back flipping the switch. That's as good as it gets. And that first act is, is then this repeated formula. And the dictionary of uh, imagery in the Bible says, here is the wonder of existence springing from non-existence, breathtaking in its suddenness and illuminating power. That's where God chooses to start. And why start there? What's so special about light that it's the first order of business now I, I, I i'm not in the mind of god i don't pretend that but at least i know about this world in this world that we live in and i can at least say that out of the chaos of the primordial earth uh, the earth being without form and void uh, as it might be referred to in verse two and then the beginning of the order of creation that god would give light as his first ingredient well here's what i know We need light. If I asked you what your true needs were, you might go down a list of things. You need food. You need water. You need oxygen. Would you remember that you need light? Virtually all life on earth is dependent on it. The tiniest bacterium and the greatest tree, all life needs some form of energy. And oftentimes, almost predominantly, the source of that energy is light without light life could not exist they go hand in hand together 
And so what we see in chapter 1 of Genesis is two sets of three that are balanced with each other. God says, let there be light in verse 3. And then later in the chapter, verses 14 through 19, there's the specificity of what that light is. And there may be a, a difference between those things The might have been general and now specific of sun and moon and, and lesser star or lesser lights like the stars. And yet that specificity is given. You can see that correspondence between those two sets. Days one through three have corresponding things that join it in days four through six. And Bruce Waltke says about the first day and the creation of light. He says light symbolizes life and blessing of various sorts. Since the sun is only later introduced as the immediate cause of life, life, the chronology of the text emphasizes that God is the ultimate source of light. And we could go on and say then he's the ultimate source of life itself. I did decide to ask uh, AI, chat GPT, because that's all the rage these days. What would happen on earth without the sun? Now, I think that AI can make some mistakes, but here's what it, it threw out there. Without the sun, life on earth would be impossible. It would be impossible. The sun is the primor- primary source of energy for our planet, providing light and heat. And it went on to list several key consequences. So the loss of light and heat a drop in temperature, loss of atmospheric components, and not to mention that we would just be plunged into darkness, freezing oceans, disruption of weather patterns. In summary, the sudden disappearance of the sun would be catastrophic for life on Earth. The vast majority of living organisms, including humans, would not survive the extreme cold, darkness, and disruption of the essential process that depends on solar energy. It's important to note that such an event is purely hypothetical, as the sun is expected to continue its life cycle for billions of years. So, I just wanted to share that good news. We do have that going for us, at least. But there we see at the very beginning of creation, God creates light. And light is life. And yet... There is darkness that extinguishes the light of our spiritual life. And that's the darkness of sin. And I don't know about you, but I am not a fan of changing our clocks a couple times a year. I will run on that in 2024. That will be my sole platform. You can write my name in. I don't know about you, in the fall, the experience is that when you get to about 6 o'clock, you start turning to the people around you and going, is, is it, what time is it? Is it 10, 11, midnight? It's only 6? It has been dark for hours. And you feel that. I think part of that is we inherently want to live in the light. And there's good reason for that. Or how about, has anybody been to Cathedral Caverns? Some of you have been, I mean, that's a field trip and it's, it's not too far. And if you wind your way down there, that's, there's that point where they take the lights and you're, you're so far in that cavern that there is no natural light and they turn those lights off. Now, thankfully, they prepare you for it. 
But do you remember how that feels if you, if you experience that? It's, it, there's a darkness that you can feel. It's all-encompassing. It surrounds you. I, I don't know where we'd be without our, our cell phone lights now. Well, I mean, we'd be in the dark, but uh, w- those bring a comfort, don't they? But let's be honest. We also learn how to get comfortable in the dark. I get it. Sometimes we have to. Power goes out. You get comfortable in the darkness. But also darkness be- can become a familiar friend in what we think is a covering for our sin. And we believe the lie that light, that life, excuse me, is found in the dark. That flourishing can be established apart from our Creator's good designs. Or that there is no hope for those who have been assaulted by the nightfall of sin. Our own or others against us. Genesis 3 tells us the what and the why of our experience in this world. It tells us that things are not the way they are supposed to be. We get a picture of how creation and the pinnacle of that creation come about, have gone, you know, man and woman, the pinnacle, have gone from good to wrecked, to marred, to changed. The possibility of sin becomes a reality. The end of chapter 2 ends with this, this great note, and God saw Excuse me, that's the end of chapter 1. There, uh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's how chapter 2 ends. After God has repeatedly said, My creation is good, and you are very good. But then you come to chapter 3, and it all changes so quickly. There's the beginning of temptation at the end of verse 1 of chapter 3. The serpent, who later is identified as Satan in scripture. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That question's posed to Eve. It's not an innocent question. It doesn't come from pure motives. Far from it. It's a misrepresentation of God's command from Genesis 2. And Eve responds correcting the serpent. But then she adds something to God's command doing the same thing that the serpent had done. She exaggerates what God's command was. And she responds there. In verse 3, she adds, and all of a sudden, the judgment and character of God are open to question. That's how this continues. Verse 4, it's explicit. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not Surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, this is the heart of sin. This is the heart of all sin, that God is withholding something good from you. So go ahead and grasp it for yourself. The idea here is posited that the creator and sustainer of life is not a good God at all, but a God who's in competition with his own creation for the highest place. The question is about authority and allegiance. And those questions remain. Under whose authority are you? 
And to whom do you owe your allegiance? And these are the same questions that are being worked out in our day-to-day lives and in our world all the time. To whose author- under whose authority are you and to whom do you owe your allegiance? And the answer here is no one. No one. Not even the Almighty God can or should have dominion over us. Satan's temptation, at least in part, is about autonomy. And there's a great tragedy and irony here. Adam and Eve did not enter into a new state of blessed autonomy, but fell under the dominion of sin and death. They're under the pall of sin and the darkness that it brings. And you see the consequences as you go through the rest of this chapter or this first part of the chapter. I didn't read it all. But they become ashamed. They become afraid of God. They begin blaming each other and blaming God. Sin has made its way into the world and now it grows like a wildfire through mankind. And now death is a new reality. It's first manifested spiritually but also physically. And it is inescapable for every single person. Light and dark after this point take on different meaning. In chapter 1 of Genesis, light and gar- darkness are just a part of God's creation. But now darkness because, becomes part of the imagery of our sin and our leaving our God. Night is still the Lord's creation. Certainly, but the darkness becomes that picture of our attempt to hide our rebellion from the Lord and to live in the antithesis of life. Darkness becomes a picture of our spiritual blindness and inability to know or see our world clearly. Fleming Rutledge writes in her book, Advent, the once and future coming of Jesus Christ. Every year, she writes, Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins with the recognition that human progress is a deception. The preacher doesn't have to spend more than five minutes gathering examples. It's all right there in the morning's paper. Or we could say now on your social media feed. The darkness of sin and separation is here. The darkness of spiritual Death and the consequence of physical death will be known by all. The darkness of shame is here. And of life turned inward on itself and for oneself rather than outwards towards our creator. And the darkness of our enmity with one another and the world around us is here. And what can we do against that kind of darkness that you can feel? And it makes you weary. You let the light shine. Not our light, but God's light. In the light of promise and hope, for he is the one who lightens our darkness. My, the Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. And thankfully he does that. And it does not take for us long in scripture to see that he's doing that before Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden. Another consequence of sin. Something we're all yearning for still. There is the light of promise to guide them in the darkness of the consequences of their sin. 
You know, God doesn't turn away from his creation. He doesn't turn back from what he intends. And he intends to redeem a people for himself. And the light of God's promise is the light that we need to see. And here, even in Genesis 3, is a promise of his coming Savior, a Savior who is both man and who is God. And that's the incarnation that we celebrate, that God comes through his Son, fully man and fully God. Look at Genesis 3.15. It's directed to Satan, but it's in hearing of man. And it's striking and stark, and it's a word of promise that is there to this evil so that we can hear it as well i will put enmity god says to the serpent the lord god between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel there's a promise here that contains the seeds of truth and faith by which we will be saved. The early church fathers called Genesis 3.15 the Proto-Evangelion or first gospel. And our early church father, David Hammond, has taught us that, many of us that. You may know it from him. And I'm thankful for a set of devotional the, uh, uh, devotionals that I'm using. It's Jonathan Gibson's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a series of scripture readings and meditations. And the first scripture reading that was given at the beginning of this series of Advent devotionals was Genesis 3, 1 through 22. That promise is here in verse 15. And as we continue through Advent, we're going to continue to see promise and fulfillment the good news of Jesus as we find it in various places. But here it begins with the promise first of a Savior who is a man. God could have left man to his own devices to suffer his own consequences of his sin alone, but instead he enters into the fray by this word. That there's going to be enmity between the seed or offspring. The seed is the Hebrew offspring of Eve who will come as a man and who will bring about the defeat of Satan. S.G. DeGraff expresses the wonder of this. He says Satan will be conquered by a man. Just as man destroyed the world in the beginning, another man will rebuild it. Although Satan would go on to do much, uh, do man much harm, a man capital M, would one day be born who would completely overcome Satan and rescue the world. The fact that this promise is here that from the offspring of Eve, there will come this one. But yet we need to know that there's something else here. It's not just a Savior who is man, but a Savior who is God, because that's exactly what we need. He must be God to bring the defeat of Satan that is promised in the second half of this verse. No mere man could bruise the head of Satan. That is to defeat Satan. There will be a death blow, even though there will be pain for this God-man, as his heel will be bruised. A man alone couldn't bring the downfall of Satan's dominion, but God can, and he does. A man alone cannot utterly defeat 
our enemy. A man cannot break through the gloom of darkness and shine the light of hope into this world. But God can. This verse points to the divinity of Christ joined with humanity to bring about that downfall. There will be pain and suffering for Christ. It's certainly true in his life. That's what we see in the Gospels, especially at the cross. But that ultimately, there will be victory. And we see that in the resurrection and the ascension. A light that shines brighter than all others. But one of the things that you can see in Scripture, in the Old Testament especially, but it, it bleeds into the New Testament, that promise will constantly be threatened by the darkness of sin. The promised seed of Eve who will crush Satan under his feet is at risk from the very beginning. The beginning of chapter 4 begins with the first murder in the Bible. Cain kills Abel and is exiled from the Lord. And we wonder, is that promise good? Who can carry that on? The answer is Seth. The Lord provides through Seth. And then we continue on and you see it again and again, a threatened to that promise. But will the promise hold? Yes. Again and again, the promise of God to shatter the domain of darkness that holds sway over the hearts of men and women estranged from their creator will be threatened and yet upheld. There is a war, but there is victory that comes through Christ, the God-man Come for us. And I'll conclude with this. In 1882, in New York City, on East 36th Street, Edward Hibbard Johnson had an idea that would make him an unsung set decorator of millions of homes and holiday snapshots. Christmas trees were already popular, but you may know there was a little bit danger involved in that because the way that people lit their Christmas trees was with candles. Now they put candles on their tree. I don't know if people with cats and that, I don't know. Anyway, and they were festive, but definitely a hazard. So uh, Johnson worked with Thomas Edison and in their shop, in in their window, they put a tree where Johnson had hand-wired 80 red and white and blue light bulbs strung together around that tree, and it actually also revolved. We need to bring those back. And it was a marvel. Apparently, they're not coming back. People would come to, to see those, and of course, that began a great uh, trend. It, it, it takes some years to take off. But we're going to be focused on a different miracle. The greater miracle and the greater light. Ex, uh, Christmas lights that you see decorating our trees on the outside of our homes. They are a picture of that light. The light in our darkness. And Dr. Cooper finished his story. This is right before Thanksgiving. He said a few days ago I received an offer of a full-time position. He'd been out of work. And uh, it's not an academic post, but he says it means stability for his family and so he's going to keep looking for ac- work in academia. But he says, so this weekend, my family celebrated in a small but meaningful way. It's nothing fancy. We did it ourselves, and I had no idea what I was doing. But it feels like I have settled an old score. He put Christmas lights up around his house for the first time in some 40 years. And an old score 
is being settled. First, with the coming of Christ into the world, and when he comes again, it will be settled forevermore. Until then, we watch and wait. We sing and savor the Savior's birth. We shine the light of God's love from this city on a hill. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you that you are our God who lightens our darkness. And we see that fulfilled so well through the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, thank you for providing exactly what we need. And Lord, I pray during this Advent season that you would help us to see your light in the midst of dark, the darkness of this world. And you'd help us to shine it to our community, to the people around us. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.